My name is Thomas, and I am going to tell you a story. Before we get started, note that this is episode two. So if you're just joining us, I'd recommend pausing here and starting from the beginning. Also, since this is a new story set in a fantastical land, it may not be the best experience to multitask while you listen. We are recording in our respective homes, safely distanced as the COVID-19 pandemic rages across the country. There is no music and there are no sound effects, but if you like, you can imagine that we are alone, you and I, in a pale desert, a merciless tundra, with only the occasional beat of hooves to disturb that great, vast emptiness. This is the Oa Oligur. Yochi stokes the campfire and stares into the flames. It is two days past their encounter with the snowfisher, two days of exhaustingly deliberate movement up the mountain, picking their way up treacherous shelves and wooded slopes to the caldera. Nariset refuses to be slowed down by their bandaged thigh, despite objections from Katu and Yochi. I know they say horses and riders look alike, but who knew it extended to matching wounds? Nariset had quipped. Golgiuk does just fine. Golgiuk is Nariset's brown palfrey. Strange scars run all up and down his legs, but they had healed well and did not seem to bother him much, at least as far as Yochi could tell. It's not lost on him that Nariset is conveniently equating their horse's old cicatrix to a fresh injury. But since their return to the wagons, Nariset had refused to let anyone look at the wound besides Katu. Katu had been trained in medicine at the Temple Venerate in Palhyro, and he seemed resignedly optimistic. So Yochi tried not to worry. The cartographer, too, seemed to be in a better mood. Following the revelation that he not only understood, but spoke Owenish quite well, he was sometimes heard to utter one, two, or even three words around the nightly campfire. Yochi observed him carefully. He had not forgotten the Andrishman's willingness to abandon Nariset. The progress each day was grueling. No one commented on the insanity of ushering two horses, a yoke of oxen, a covered wagon, and a supply cart up Skybreaker Mountain. They'd had a glimpse at the veil, and the unspoken consensus was clear. If this is what they had to do, they'd do it. Here we are again. Katu has returned with more firewood. He drops it unceremoniously in the snowmelt by the fire, and deflates into his seat. It must be close to the caldera by now, wouldn't you think? I honestly have no idea. Katu sighs and pulls a crumpled wrap of wafers from his robe. He inspects one of the dry brown discs of pressed barley before popping it into his mouth. He gnaws despondently. What do you think we'll find there? Yochi asks. I honestly have no idea. Maybe the mountain is filled with fire, like the volcano mines of Ravel. Maybe that fire heats the caldera naturally. Maybe it is a mirage. Or, or maybe it's something else. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think any of us do. I can only tell you what Gemogen thinks it means. And what does Gemogen think it means? Katu finishes chewing and swallows with some discomfort. I have told you of the desolation, yes? Yochi nods. 
Following the great portents, the vanishment of Rod, the plagues of Nobulos. The seven plagues. The seven plagues of Nobulus. Yes. Following the seven plagues of Nobulos and the breaking of Andor and the rest of the portents, there was a great thunderclap across the sky as the gods abandoned the world. Gone forever. Leaving Cella Celestia to ruin. And leaving us to desolation. Yes, precisely. But that is not what Gimogen believes. Yochi frowns. What does Gimogen believe? Before Katu can respond, Gimogen and Nereset emerge from the woods, clad in heavy furs, a dead lynx slung between them. They speak to each other in Thassa, sharply articulated vowel sounds interspersed with guttural drawls. Where's the cartographer? Nereset breaks into Oanish as they limp towards the fire. They unsling the lynx and let it fall to the snow, an arrow still protruding from its shoulder. He's in the coach, journaling. That's an impressive-looking cat. Nereset draws a blade and eyes the animal critically. Not much meat on its bones. Mean pickings. We came upon a tunnel. It must lead to the caldera. We got no way of knowing that. There's a treeless stretch just over that ridge. Shouldn't be too hard to reach with the wagons. I think we can get there by midday tomorrow. I don't see why we'd volunteer ourselves as meat for more cave dwellers when we could just continue climbing. Nariset. Kayu utar eoklari. Nariset nods, and Gemogen paces away towards the wagons. Katu looks at Nariset. This tunnel. It's big enough for the coach and oxen. Nariset digs their knife into the pelt of the lynx, and with a practiced tug, pulls back the first flap of skin exposing pink flesh beneath. It's big enough for an army. Nariset rarely exaggerates in Yochi's experience, and the tunnel proves to be no exception. It is a yawning void, at least 50 feet tall and twice as wide at the mouth. Yochi brings the team of oxen to a stop and leaps from his seat. His breath steams from his lips as he looks into the dark space before them. Gemogen and Nariset watch from atop Sasi and Golgyuk. How does a cavern of this size form? Gemogen urges her steed forward, all eyes on her. It doesn't. She emits a sudden whoop, part laugh and part victory howl, and Sasi whinnies and rears up on her hind legs. Nariset winces. Golgyuk snorts and paws at the snowy ground beneath them. Look at the marks around the edge of the arch! Yochi looks. There was something odd about how the stone was cut away. There were wide divots spaced semi-evenly around the sides of the arch, almost as if the rock had been scooped away, like dirt or sand. This tunnel was carved, but not by any tool known to humans. Not the Thars, not the Kalians, and no, not even the Ulgin, the great city builders themselves. Gleeful. Gemogen guides Sasi in a tight circle before the party. Sasi is an Aladian mountain horse, or Ulanmoor. Gemogen cuts an impressive figure atop her in her pale mountain furs, straight-backed and triumphant. Nariset urges Golgik forward to join them. The brown palfrey looks almost like a pony next to Sasi's 2,000 pounds of beige-haired sinew. We'll lead the way with torches. Katu, sit in the back of the coach and keep an eye behind us, will you? Katu nods. Onward! Our destinies await. 
The wagons roll through the darkness, the creaking of wood and the clatter of iron-shod hooves echoing gently around them. The torchlight doesn't quite illuminate the stone above their heads, creating the eerie illusion of endless space above them. It's also surprisingly warm. Yochi pulls off his gloves and stows them carefully in his pack. The leather reins are rough against his palms as he nudges the oxen forward, following the two flickering halos borne by Gemogen and Nereset. The cartographer peers over Yochi's shoulder. Who do you think was the last creature to pass through this tunnel? It's an oddly rhetorical sentiment coming from the cartographer, normally so tight-lipped. Yochi looks at him, and the strange artisan looks back. Somehow I suspect they were traveling the other direction. Hold! Yochi brings the oxen to a halt, and the echoes fade. He shivers. In the quiet, the great vastness of the mountain above and below them feels more like a lurking malevolence. Like the red-mouthed man. But thankfully, that particular figment is nowhere to be seen. One of the torchlight halos shines brighter as Nariset rides to them, carried on reverberations of sound. What is it? We've come to a kind of fork. The tunnel slopes sharply up to the left and sharply down to the right. How steep is it? Steep enough, we can't take the wagons down like this. Gemogen is fashioning a makeshift wench. Yochi, you're to unyoke the oxen and help her. But will we be able to return this way? Nariset shoots Yochi a look. There is barely a moment's hesitation, but a moment nonetheless, before they say, I wouldn't give orders that I believe to be death sentences. With some difficulty, Nariset slides off of Golgyuk, taking care to favor their wounded leg. They pull themselves up onto the coach and throw open the chest containing Gemogen's climbing equipment. Besides, Gemogen will not be stopped now. There is light at the end of each slope. Yochi directs the steer towards the incline their harnesses reconfigured to support the operation of the winch. Rope squeaks from their yoke through a series of pulleys to the wagon, which rolls slowly down the slope as the oxen advance. When the wagons reach the end of the ramp, Katu shouts from below, Made it! And Yochi untethers the team and guides them carefully down the slope after the horses. They're reluctant, but ultimately persuaded. At the base of the incline, they leave the wagons and oxen behind them for a moment to walk the few hundred yards remaining to the great archway of light that greets them. Yochi shields his eyes against the sun and peeks below his arm. The smooth tunnel floor gives way to what can only be described as a road, a paved marble causeway that snakes off into the woods before them. Katu gasps, and Yochi turns to follow his gaze. I don't believe it. The mouth of the tunnel is carved into an enormous bas-relief, depicting a woman looking upward, her hands grasping the sides of the tunnel entrance between her breasts, as if she were tearing her chest apart to form the arch. Her upturned face bears an expression that might be pain or ecstasy. Her lips parted, her eyes rolled up to gaze upon the sky. The carved waves of her hair fan from her head in a wild orgy of swirls, and the smooth lines of her arms stretch across the cliff face in stark contrast. 
And so Anrana made of her heart the world. Gemogen dismounts Tsasi and walks to Katu's side, placing a hand upon his shoulder. And the world poured forth from her like blood from a wound. Katu's chest heaves. A glint upon his cheek makes Yochi feel almost abashed to look at him. He is weeping. Come, let's take this road while we still have the light. It takes some adjusting to the temperature of the veil after their long journey through the frozen wastes. They all strip their outer garments, continuing in shirt sleeves and cotton caftans. The cartographer changes into a resplendent sleeveless red and yellow tunic. He sits up at the front of the coach with Yochi and sketches on a fresh sheet of parchment. They travel down the marble path until the sun sinks past the ridge of the caldera. They leave behind the mossy boulders and pockmarked stone and enter a thinly populated coniferous forest. Pine cones crunch beneath the wagon wheels as their shadows grow longer. When the last direct rays of sunlight are about to wink out of sight, the road comes to a sudden terminus, giving way to a dusty dirt plateau and a sea of grass below. First camp. Here's where we'll make our first camp in the gods' first home. Yochi watches the cartographer echo the phrase in ink. First camp, he writes, in tightly looped letters, nestled between rough pen strokes representing trees. We have not had much luck with hunts of late. Let's see if we can't do better this time. Mapmaker, can you strike a boar with an arrow if need be? I can. Good. Katu, you and Yochi guard the wagons while we look for dinner. I'll hunt with the cartographer. Yochi raises his voice, almost surprised at himself. Oh? I I just mean that perhaps we would cover more ground in pairs? There are two sides to this clearing, and I figure the two Thars will hunt better as one than with a novice each in tow. Well. She looks from Yochi to the Andershman. Do try to bring something edible back, regardless. Yochi had never trained with a bow and arrow, or any weapon, really. He'd made his living working with animals, and that did not usually entail killing them. Usually. Once, an outrider had returned to Whisper City on foot, practically dragging his horse through the northern gate. The stable master took one look and shook his head. The leg shattered. Yochi, take her to the pig shed and make it quick. There's a wood axe should do. Yochi had done his best. He tried not to think of it, but the memory crept in from time to time. He remembered that the outrider, a man named Kellark, had seemed more annoyed than anything else. Yochi thought that was a shame. He remembered Kellark's crinkled brow, and he remembered the heavy, agonizing breath of the horse, the glassy sheen of exhaustion in her huge brown eyes. There is something about the Andrishman that reminds Yochi of Kellark. A certain haughtiness, perhaps. Then again, he certainly seems to know what he's doing. He crouches a few paces ahead, his bow at the ready, an arrow gently cradled between two fingers and knocked against the top bowstring. Yochi wonders just how much help he'll be if even a wild hen should choose to wander into their path. Where'd you learn archery? My uncle. The cartographer frowns and shakes his head, as if regretting he'd answered the question. He had a knack for it. 
Yochi wishes his uncle had taught him something as useful as marksmanship. Perhaps then he wouldn't feel so silly wandering the woods with a short spear and a frayed net. Why don't you ask Narissa to teach you? Yochi blinks. It was almost as if he'd read his mind. I don't know. The, the skill wouldn't do me much good in the city, with no bow and no shortage of food in the markets. Hmm. Not having need of something in the past is unfortunately a rather poor indicator of whether or not one will need it in the future. Yochi nods. <laughs> the cartographer had changed into a dusty green scaramangium, a long-sleeved hunting coat with buttons down one side. It amazes Yochi how different the man could look with a simple costume change. One minute the mysterious hooded passenger, the next a veritable spirit of summer, and now a conspicuously fashionable woodsman. He was like a shapeshifter. It didn't exactly ingratiate. On the contrary, Yochi had nursed a growing suspicion of him ever since the incident with the snowfisher. Do you have debt collectors after you or something? <laughs> what? Yochi is a little pleased with how utterly flummoxed the cartographer sounds. I just realized we've been traveling together for nearly a full moon, and I still don't know your name. Has anyone asked? The cartographer hesitates. Alt. Yochi hadn't expected that. Alt? Is, is it short for something? You wanted a name, and I've given you one. Surely we need not bicker over its quality. <laughs> Fair enough. And the bagman? I am not a debtor. Then why are you here, Alt? I think I preferred it when you could not so easily address me. Apologies. And they subside into silence again. A silence eerily unmarred by rustling wind or birdsong. They stalk the woods for another hour or two. The light fades, muting the greens and browns around them. They return to the wagons empty-handed. Nothing? The cartographer shakes his head. No luck on your side either? Nariset and Gemogen exchange a look. No. Nariset says. Nothing. They make do with bone broth and a meager ration of cured meat. They're mostly quiet, tired, and discouraged. But as the fire is dying down, Katu begins to speak. Yochi always enjoys hearing tales from the past, but this seems more sermon than story, and Yochi finds religion itself rather dull. He lets the words wash over him without paying them much heed. Yochi's uncle Cotter had been a devout believer. In fact, so devout was he that he didn't have time for distractions, such as cooking, cleaning, or even basic kindness and decency. He was a strange, mean man before he disappeared. Probably he still was. That is, if he was still alive. When Yochi was very young, when they still lived in the village along the Barnvase River, traveling preachers would come by every once in a while. They weren't like Gemogen or Katu, though. They believed in new gods, the benevolent saviors, Deyasu and Thentir, Isaris and Gudan. It was very confusing, though. Every other priest assured Yochi that these were all aspects of the mighty Deos, while the rest insisted that they were separate entities tied in union with the church. Deos was supposed to have adopted the world, bringing an end to the long darkness that followed the desolation and the disappearance of the old gods. Evangelists of Deos traveled the continent, 
spreading the good news of his arrival. Uncle Cotter listened with rapt attention to everything these visitors said. He was frequently the last man standing in the village square with the preachers, until even they looked exhausted by his questioning. He wanted to know everything about Deos, about their rites and rituals, about the divine war between God and Erdik Khan, the castes of light, the chromament, and on and on and on and on. After their village burned, Cotter was all Yochi had left. They'd made their way to Whisper City, and for some months lived together in a slum near the South Market. But one day Yochi woke and his uncle was gone, leaving behind only a small copper brooch that had belonged to Yochi's mother. Yochi still pins his caftan with the brooch, a bent disc engraved with a sheep's face. Seven years had passed since Cotter had vanished, and Yochi can't say he misses him now. Probably he'd gone off to become an evangelist himself or something. Yochi prefers the stories Katu tells. And so we find ourselves at a cosmic scene where the reality that we know and the reality we cannot comprehend are sewn together. There's something grand about it. It's something dangerous, too, like a wild animal. There are stories of terrible things happening at such seams in the universe. Take, for example, the fate of Fane, once called the Land of I, now known only as the Shining Sands. This is more like it. Yochi leans forward eagerly. Why was Akalian territory home to thousands, reduced to a desert in the long darkness? We may never know for sure, but it's no coincidence that the last battle of the Iconomachy occurred in I. For centuries, the new year was celebrated at Aedweir's fall, the day that Fane, Akalian no less, brought down the last of the icons, ending one era and ushering in the next. Yochi knows this story. Aedwyr the Ravenous, the Lord of Greed, the last icon, ruled over I for a thousand years. Aedwyr had the power of the two-handed wish. For every wish he granted a mortal, he could make one for himself. He was nine hundred feet tall, but Fane, a humble riverman, wished to look him in the eyes before he died. Aedwyr was said to have laughed, picked Fane up and carried him into the sky whereupon Fane drove his fishing spear through Aedwyr's throat. The land of Ai was renamed Fane, and each new year of Deimos was celebrated on Fane's day, or Aedwyr's fall. Ara, Ono, and Ulu created so much beauty, Katu continues, using the dead god Selic names. But what is striking when you read the first histories is just how much ugliness and evil they created as well. They created the angels, after all, but they created the icons, too. They created the world, they created us, and they created this place. Katu looks into the fire. There is nothing so holy that it is free of all darkness. Maybe it's the rumbling stomach, or perhaps Katu's strange speech but Yochi sleeps fitfully that night. He awakens suddenly in the small hours with a desperate fear in him. He is sure that the red-mouthed man is near, crouching over him, watching him, dripping. 
but it's just his imagination. Hand shaking, Yochi reaches for the flap of the tent he shares with the other men and pulls it aside. The moon is bright. It must be full or nearly. Yochi looks back at the sleeping figure of the cartographer. Alt. The moonlight bathes his cheek in silver, and just a few inches away, it illuminates his leather-bound journal. Yochi tenses. He shouldn't. But then, this opportunity might never come again. It just doesn't feel right to travel with someone so obsessed with secrecy. Wasting no time, Yochi ties back the tent flap and reaches for the book. He glances once again at the mapmaker, who appears to be sleeping soundly. Yochi opens the journal. The leather is warm against his hands. To my nephew, the great deeds of great men must be recorded. He flips the page, but he's hardly read more than a sentence before he realizes that the heat from the book is neither natural nor imagined. The parchment is burning his fingers as if he'd stuck them in the fresh ashes of their campfire. He gasps, slams the book shut, and drops it from his scorched palms. Before he can so much as exhale, the cartographer's hands close around Yochi's collar. Yochi finds himself staring into a mask of fury. What do you think you're doing? There is a strange radiance shining from beneath the cartographer's nightshirt. The leather bands tying it across his chest have loosened, and beneath them, glowing red-hot as if fresh from the iron, is the sigil of Andor, branded into the cartographer's chest. An ornate circle of Andrish runes, enclosing a snarling tiger and a mighty elk in combat. You're... Olgin. You're a pure-blood scion of the Broken Kingdom. The cartographer snatches the journal from the ground, and in a single, fluid motion, he rises to his feet and sweeps out of the tent. Yochi breathes heavily, his heart racing. He looks after Alt, the last words he'd read spinning through his mind in Rota. This was episode two of the Oa Oligur and of season two of Thomas Tells a Story. The show is written and created by myself, Thomas Constantine Moore, and our theme music is by Joe Mendick. Yochi is voiced by Heron Atkins, Gemogen by Molly Griggs, Katu by Jeffrey Omura, Nariset by Alexis Floyd, and The Cartographer by Keith Saunders. Thank you for listening. This story will continue in the new year. Hey there, it's me again. If you're joining us for Season 2, welcome. And if you were a fan of Season 1, welcome back. A couple housekeeping things to get out of the way. First, I realize that this episode is about two months later than promised, and I apologize. Like many of us, I have been struggling with some pretty severe mental health issues during the pandemic, and being depressed takes up a lot of time. 
I'm happy to report that I do seem to have come out the other end of the tunnel, so to speak, and I don't think it's a coincidence that I finished the script when I did. Second, I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge my wonderful season one producers, Toro and Janelle, whose enthusiasm, creativity, and drive helped power me through the first major installment of the Ellen Dread. As happens with creative folks, they've both become too busy with their own projects to dedicate time to TTAS, so I hope you'll follow them in their new endeavors even as we part ways on this one. Toro has started her own podcast, Bullish with Toro, where she asks the essential question, are you doing what you want to be doing with your life? And Janelle is an editor of the Orbiting Human Circus podcast from the Night Vale Presents Network, which just finished its second season. You can also watch Janelle's award-winning short horror film, Sell Your Body, on the Alter YouTube channel. It's awesome. Definitely check it out. Bringing it back to TTAS, if you love this show and want to keep it going, one of the best things you can do is spread the word and tell your friends. You can also follow us on Twitter at TTAS Podcast, or join the community on Reddit at r slash Thomas Tells. But, most importantly, this season, you actually get to influence the events of the story. After episode one, you voted for Yochi to go hunting with the cartographer and steal a look at his journal, and we learned a name for him, as well as that he's Ulgen, branded with the sigil of Andor. You also voted for Yochi to ask Nariset what became of her herd, but you'll have to wait till next episode to see how that plays out. There are three new choices to be made after episode two. So go to our website at thomastellsastory.com slash next right now and vote on what you want to see happen in episode three. And don't forget, lives may hang in the balance. <laughs>